theyeshiva.net. Three times in Parshas Re'eh does the Torah warn the Jewish people against idolatry, against Avodah all forms of pagan idolatry. Each time, the Torah follows up with a strange and identical term. You are in danger of following alien gods and idols, ones that you never heard of and you never knew. The first time is right in the opening of the Parsha, Dvarim Perik of Pasuk Chavchez, Deuteronomy 11.28. Shem says, Moshe gives over Hashem's words, Haklala im loisishmu o mitzvah Hashem alekechem, v'sartim en aderech esher noichim mitzavah eschem ayoyim laleches achere aleikim acherim asher loy yedaitim. The curse will come if you will not heed the mitzvahs of Hashem. You will turn away from the way I commanded you to follow other gods which you never knew of. Then again, two chapters later, Perik Yud Gimel Posig Zion, chapter 13, verse 7 in Parshas Re'e, he speaks of a situation where somebody will tempt you or entice you to go worship alien pagan gods, and here again he says, it may be your brother, a sibling, it may be a son, it may be a daughter, it may be a best friend, it may be a spouse, and they're going to say to you, Let's go worship other gods which you have never known, and neither you nor have your fathers or forefathers known these gods. And then a third time, just a few verses later, Perikid Gimel Pasikidalat speaks about a whole city of Jews that is enticed to engage in pagan idolatry. Two people from the city rise up and go on a major propaganda campaign. And they manage literally to mobilize and brainwash and indoctrinate most people of the city to start worshiping idols. And here again the expression is that people from your city may get up may stand up and ultimately persuade the city to worship and engage in idolatry, and they say, Let us go and worship other gods which you have never known. We can notice here the identical term used in all three descriptions. The Torah uses the expression pursuing or worshiping or serving other gods which you have never known. Why does the Torah keep on emphasizing this? Not once and not two times, but three times. What's the difference if you knew the alien gods or you didn't know? The issue here is, be careful of pagan idolatry. As the Torah says, that the pagan forms of idolatry were not just false, but they were abominable, they were repulsive, they were sadistic, they were barbaric, and they included torture sadism, and evil immorality of the highest and most horrific order. As the Torah describes in Parshish Re'eh, that many or most or all of these pagan idolatries included parents sacrificing their children, taking daughters and sons, and having them being consumed in flames, live alive as a part of worshipping these fake and delusional gods. As Rashi brings there from Rabbi Akiva that the Torah is intimating, they would also often murder parents. Rabbi Akiva said, I myself saw 
a pagan idolater who sacrificed his own father to the idol. As Rashi says, the idol was like a dog, a kelev, a dog, looked like the statue of a dog, and he sacrificed his father to this dog on the flames of this idolatry, as of this idol, as the commentators explain Rashi from the Gemara. So these were not just false gods, but they were gods that introduced into society the worst forms of behavior, the highest and most depraved behaviors and habits and inclinations, all under this assumption that this is how you're going to appease these gods and make your life happier and a greater success story. Why is it relevant to emphasize three times these are gods that you do not know? You never knew them. And what if you did know them? Why is that so important? The Torah could have simply stated that you're being enticed. Someone is telling you, let's go worship other gods, fake gods, alien gods, idolatrous gods, without the addition which you have never known or your father has never known. Let us assume that a person pursues or becomes addicted to pagan deities which he or she has known about. They didn't know about them. Would that make it any less reprehensible or toxic? Why is it that in all three injunctions against idolatry, the Torah makes sure to include this additional phrase, that what matters is that a person was not versed in these deities. He was ignorant of them. And if he was not ignorant of them? One answer to this was presented by one of the illustrious sages, rabbis, leaders of the 19th century, known as Rabbi Moshe Seifer, or the Chassam Seifer. Rabbi Moshe Seifer, the Chassam Seifer, was born in 1762. He passed away in 1839, and he's most known by his main work, Chassam Seifer. Chassam Seifer means the seal of the scribe, but it's also an acronym, because Chassam is Ches Saf Mem, Seifer. So Chassam is Chidushe, Toiras Moshe. Chassam is Chidushe, Toiras Moshe. Chassam Seifer, Seifer, because his last name was Seifer, or Schreiber, Scriber. Many of the Schreibers, or the Seifers today, many of them, not all, are descendants of the Chassam Seifer. So Chassam Seifer is Chidushe Toiras Moshe Seifer. He was the rabbi of Preshburg. Preshburg is today the city of Bratislava. Then it was part of the Austria. Hungarian Empire, which of course was later dissolved during the First World War, which begins in 1914. But the Chassam Seifer lived in the early, late 1700s, early 1800s. And he was one of the renowned Jewish leaders of his time. His published works, the Chassam Seifer's published include more than 1,000 responsa that he wrote to Jewish leaders, rabbis, scholars, communities, and individuals around the world a whole commentary on Torah called Torah's Moshe, because his name was Moshe, Reb Moshe Seifer, a commentary on the Talmud. In addition to that, religious poetry. He was a great and talented poet. The following insight that I share with you today comes from his commentary on Torah, a little developed and elucidated the way I understood it. So the Chassam Seifer, Rabbi Moshe Seifer, explains that with these seemingly superfluous and unnecessary words, The Torah is conveying to us a very profound teaching. How is it that an intelligent nation like the Jewish people, who are defined in the same book of Dvarim as an Am Chacham Venavin, a brilliant and intelligent people, can sometimes become so foolish? 
can sometimes be captivated and abducted by the philosophies and ideas of all these false gods. How can a wise and brilliant nation fall prey to the allure of counterfeit beliefs? There was once a Jewish leader who said in Yiddish, he said, ah, Jews are an am chachem v'novin, they're such an intelligent people. They're am chachem v'novin, if this brilliant people will only have a little seichel. How is it that such a wise nation, critical, intellectual, very discerning, stubborn in so many ways, nonetheless, they can often allow themselves to be abducted and kidnapped ideologically by hollow ideologies, by foolish and empty ideas, treating them like gods, when there is really no substance to them, and at the end they all prove to be worthless. One of our greatest prophets, the Navi Yirmiyahu, is astounded by this phenomenon that he observed during his era in Jewish life. Yirmiyahu Navi lived and observed the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash in 586 before the Common Era. He was the prophet during the reign of the last five kings of Judea until the last one who was blinded by Nebuchadnezzar Tzitkiyahu. And Yirmiyahu Navi saw that very powerful moral political, military, and ultimately physical and spiritual decimation of the first Jewish commonwealth. And in chapter 2 of Yirmiyahu Hanavi, he cries out these words. He says, So says Hashem, What wrong did your forefathers find in me? God says, What blemish? You know, when two people are close, they're very close, and then one of them says, I don't want to see you anymore. You want to know, what blemish did you find in me? Just tell me. God says, such vulnerable words. God says, what did they find so bad in me? What did they find so wrong in me? That they distanced themselves from me. And they went after futility. They went after vanity. God says, am I so bad? Am I so worthless? Has a nation ever exchanged a real God for those who are not gods? Yet my nation exchanged their glory for the futile. And Yirmiya continues, O oh heavens, be astonished about this. Shoymu shamayim alzois. My people have committed two wrongs. They have forsaken me, the spring of living waters, to dig for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, boris nishbarim, that do not hold the water. Too wrong. Sometimes you forsake a living, beautiful, fresh, vibrant wellspring. In your mind, you're going to a better wellspring. But here, you're forsaking a wellspring that's giving you water. It's irrigating you. It's quenching your thirst and your loved one's thirst. So where do you go? Let's see the great treasure chest that you have discovered. What's the alternative? What did you substitute this living wellspring of water with? God says they substituted it with cisterns that are broken, that are leaking. They're not living wellsprings, and they can't even contain the water. You know, in a life, I remember a businessman once spoke to me. Very, very successful businessman, a multimillionaire at the time. And we were schmoozing once. And he says, you know, what happens when you have somebody who's your partner in business, and you're doing well? You're doing well, and he's a fine person. But you see much greater potential if you can detach yourself from him. 
He's ultimately hindering the enterprise, not because he means bad, but you just see lucrative options that require from you to go beyond him, to be able to say goodbye. How do you feel about that? What's the, you know, what are your moral obligations in this part? And we're not talking about legal obligations in terms of contracts and leases, but in terms of moral obligations, he asked me, is this a good enough reason to be able to abandon your partner just because you see greater lucrative options? It's a very interesting question. So at least if there's a lucrative opportunity, God says, you know, you're leaving a wellspring because you found a better wellspring, but you're leaving a wellspring to go to broken cisterns. And then Yirmiya Hanavi continues. He says, I planted you as a noble vine stock filled with right and true seeds. Kuloi zera emes. Now, how have you turned yourself into a degenerate wild vine to me? How did you Transform yourself. And Yirmiya continues, These are Jews who will turn to wood and say, You are my father. They will turn to stone and say, You gave birth to us. How can you look at wood or stone, lifeless objects, and see them as your progenitors, as the ones who have given you life and existence, and they become your new gods? Extraordinary words of Yirmiyahu Hanavi. But the truth is, in each generation, it's very sad, but it's a fact through history. Some of our best and finest have been consumed by gods, by ideologies, by philosophies, by dreams of all types, venerating, idolizing, and worshipping them, sometimes to a point of absolute insanity, complete blind faith. In each milieu, it's almost you can count on it as a new movement arises with the promise to emancipate mankind, to remove oppression from the world, to heal the universe. You can count on more than a few Yidalach, on more than a few Jews who will somehow manage to stand at the helm of these movements and become part of revolution. And you see it till this very day. And you've seen it especially in last years. Some depraved ideas, disgusting ideas, sometimes riddled with hatred and anti-Semitism of the worst type. Rhetoric against Jews, against the one Jewish homeland in the world. And nonetheless, you see our own brothers and sisters, people who come from Jews, who just fall prey to it. And they become revolutionaries and they become leaders in these movements that have so much hatred in them and are filled with such toxicity and such negativity and things that would undermine their own family, their own parents, their own siblings, their own people. One of the saddest, most horrific examples of this is the Stalinist Soviet Union, the USSR. That's where many of our parents and grandparents grew up. That's where I, my family comes from. Both of my father, Olova Shalom, was born in Mamantovka near Moscow. My mother was born in Georgia, in Kutaisi. They both grew up in the 1930s, Stalinist Russia, 1930s and 1940s, and then they escaped with their families after the Second World War. 
but uh, it's one of the what's one of the saddest examples of this phenomenon. Untold numbers of Jews blindly sold their souls and ultimately their bodies to the communist ideals, to the communist party, which sowed misery and untold agony in the lives of millions. Karl Marx was the grandson of two Orthodox rabbis. He was the son of parents who were baptized. He was the intellectual father of socialism. Leon Trotsky was born as Leibala Bronstein. He, in many ways, was the intellectual father of the Russian, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Communist Revolution. He, along with Joseph Stalin and three others, fought to succeed Vladimir Lenin as the leader of the Communist Party after Lenin's death in 1924. They tell a story that in 1920, when Trotsky was head of the Red Army, and he was brutal. That man was brilliant and brutal. Moscow's chief rabbi was a man named Rabbi Yaakov Maza. And he went to visit Trotsky and he asked him to use the army to protect Jews from the pogromist attacks. People don't know how many Jews were murdered. It was extraordinary amounts of Jews during the civil war between the Reds and the Whites. 1918, 1919, 1920. These were horrific times. And he went to Trotsky, says, you have the Red Army, protect Jews from these pogroms. And you know what Trotsky said? Trotsky is reported to have responded to the rabbi of Moscow. Why do you come to me? I'm not a Jew. This is Leiba Lebronstein who became Leon Trotsky. And they say that Rabbi Yaakov Maza responded and he told Trotsky, that's the tragedy. It's the Trotskys who make the revolutions and it's the Bronsteins who pay the price for those revolutions. Ultimately, in August 1940, while living in Mexico, Stalin's henchmen axed Leon Trotsky to death. It is hard to believe how many young Jews, intellectuals, wise in many ways, intelligent and accomplished people, who really were driven, there was a, a, a fire of ideology in their souls. And nonetheless, they managed to become the architects of probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, one of the greatest living hells in human history called Soviet Russia, where Stalin between 1924 and 1953, his death, March 53, Purim time, killed between 20 and 50 million of his own people. And much of these operations were administered or helped or designed by Jews in the name of healing the world, in the name of helping the workmen, in the name of creating equality and obliterating envy and jealousy and competitiveness and hatred from the world. It's hard to believe this, but I have read... I'm not a researcher of history. I'm not a historian. I'm telling you what I read. Maybe some figures are off. In 1934, according to some published statistics, 38.5% of those holding the most senior posts in the Soviet security apparatuses were of Jewish origin. They didn't see themselves as Jews. 
Of course not. They saw themselves as communists, Stalinists, Soviet loyalists. They hated Judaism. They hated Jews. And for them, communism was the new Messiah and the communist party was the utopia. This was the ideal. Most of them, Later, in the famous purges of Stalin in the 1930s and 1940s, they were murdered by Stalin. Ultimately, he saw them as dirty, filthy Jews, and he could not trust them. Very few of them survived. Very few of them. What about the Yevsekzia? I spoke about the Yevsekzia last night in a lecture, about the rock of Ukraine. The Yevsekzia was the Jewish section of the Communist Party created by Shimon Dimenstein. In 10 years, from nineteen, from 1919 to 1929, they managed to destroy Judaism in a way that it could not be destroyed over 200 years in Eastern Europe. Just in 9, 10 short years. 1929, Stalin didn't need them anymore. He dismantled them. And most of the Asexia was murdered in the 1930s and 1940s. Again, they proved to be Jew, too Jewish and not loyal enough, even though they were the ones who single-handedly eradicated and destroyed every last vestige of Judaism in the Soviet Union. Jews, many of them grew up in a cheder, had a Jewish education, spoke a fluent Yiddish, could even read a blad gemara or say a pasuk chumash. So many of them were grandchildren or children of Hasidim or of other from religious observant Jews. And yet, the depravity that they reached and the hatred that they showed to Judaism more than Gentiles is still surreal. By the way, these are pieces of history that very few Jews know. Very few. I ask people who the Efsekti, they don't even know who the Efsekti is. But these are important pieces of history because it it makes us curious, it intrigues us to try to understand what is going on. Yeshaya Hanavi has an expression, we said it in the Haftarah last week, literally it means God promises one day all those who demolish you and destroy you will leave you. But there's a famous explanation, homiletical explanation, sometimes those who destroy you most are those who come from you. They come from inside of you. Because the hate that they have is so profound. There's something inside of them that does, keep, makes them restless and they could sometimes be the worst danger. You know, there's no fight like a fight within a family. Infighting within a family, within a community is the most lethal. Because it's coming from inside. People who really are supposed to be so connected to each other and loyal to each other. I remember the story about one Jew. His name was Genrich Yagoda. He was the founder and the commander of the NKVD. NKVD was the secret police, the organization in charge of many of the murders in Russia. And Yagoda diligently implemented Stalin's collectivization orders. He's responsible for the death probably of millions his Jewish deputies managed the gulag system, which murdered millions. Of course, at some point, Stalin did not view him favorably, and Yagoda was executed. And he was replaced in 1936 by the famous, horrific, infamous hangman Yezhov, known as the bloodthirsty dwarf Yezhov, until he lost favor in Stalin's eyes. Now, Yezhov was not Jewish, but he was blessed with an active Jewish wife. During the darkest period of terror, 
when the communist killing machine worked in full force, Stalin was surrounded by some young, beautiful Jewish women. One of his closest associates and loyalists, a member of the Central Committee and Politburo, included another Jew, Lazar Kaganovich, Lazar Kaganovich. Leonard Reichman was head of the Enkivide Special Department and the organization's chief integri- uh, in- interrogator. He was also Jewish, Mr. Reichman. But forget uh, about, for a moment, the, the Soviet security apparatus, those who actually implemented the horrors and created, pur- created purgatory. Millions of Jews around the world, leftist intellectuals, were staunch ideological supporters of the communist ideals and parties. Not long ago, before Corona, I was asked to give a lecture at a Shabbaton, which had around 2,000 Jews who came out of Russia. It was here in Stamford, Connecticut, not far. I spoke Sunday afternoon, a keynote address. And I spoke about the history of Russian Jews, the emancipation of Russian Jewry that began in 1990, the renaissance of Judaism in Russia, the success of Russian Jews that came to Israel and other parts of the world. And obviously I spoke about the dark error of Russian history. And so those of you, I know some of you who listen uh, were at that event, you remember how after I came, I spoke, I came down from the podium and an elderly Russian Jew came over to me. And did he begin to rebuke me and holler at me and chastise me? How He says, you're another American brain, brainwashed American. The propaganda of America, he says, the propaganda, he tells me a propaganda of Churchill and Roosevelt and Eisenhower and Kennedy. He says, the propaganda, Stalin saved the world. Stalin saved the whole world. Stalin saved Israel. And it was just fascinating to listen to him, how he is a Jew. In the 21st century, the indoctrination of the Soviet Union worked so well that when Stalin died in 1953, millions of Russians were weeping and sobbing like babies. They couldn't even imagine that this should be the happiest day of their life, one of the most bloodthirsty, greatest murderers and evil men in the history of mankind. Drop dead. But they couldn't wrap their brain around it. And he spoke about Stalin with such love, with such nostalgia, with such affection. It was incredible, literally incredible. A man who literally murdered 50 million people. He probably killed more people than Adolf Hitler. Yemach Shemom Vizichra. This is communism. But forget communism. This happened constantly in history. How could this happen? In the words of Yirmiyah, they have forsaken me the spring of living waters to dig for themselves broken cisterns that can't contain water. And look throughout Jewish history. Read the Tanakh, the Moilech of old, the Baal of old, with their horrific orgies, promiscuity, immorality, murder of children, as a natural part of the routine of what these gods need. You had to kill your children, burn your children alive. There was a Moilech idol where parents had to take a child, their oldest, one of their children, and pass him through the fire or keep him in the fire. And the priests, you'll forgive me women, the priests, Chazal say, the priests would drum. They would do a drum roll so loud so the mothers wouldn't hear the hollering of the babies. Because if the mothers would, they were afraid they would have compassion. 
And yet some Jews fell prey to the Moilech, to the Baal. And throughout all of history, different gods, different false idols. In the modern day, different forms of the Haskola, the Bundistan, the Socialisten, the Communisten, and so many other radical and non-radical movements. And Jews bid farewell to Judaism to forge a new destiny based on the promises of these new gods, pursuing them with such commitment and passion, throwing under their bus their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their heritage of thousands of years. Why? Now this is a complicated question. And if you expect that I'm going to stand here and give you the authoritative answer on this question, I I simply don't have the competence or the knowledge to do that. But the Chassam Seifer, in a brilliant commentary, presents one perspective. And it's indicated in the above Torah, Pasuk, in the above Pasuk, if your brother, the son of your mother, tempts you in secret, let's go back to that Pasuk that I read earlier, Parshas Re'eh, Perik Yud Gimel Pasuk Zayin, Ki Yisischa, Chicha, Benimecha, Yibincha, Yivitecha, Eishas, Chekecha, Reyacha, Shekinamshecha, Baseser, Lamer, Neilcha, Venavda, Lekim, Acherim, Asheloya, Daita, Ata, Vavesecha. Your own family member comes and entices you and says, let's go worship other gods which you have not known, not you, nor your fathers, nor your forefathers. Says the Chsam Seifer, the appeal and the glitter of alien gods is the sense of novelty. We look for something new, fresh, original, innovative. These new gods we never knew, we never heard about them, and therefore they provide us with a high that I am part of a revolution that will finally heal the world from all of the maladies and social illnesses that have been toxic and have destroyed and corroded civilization. It's the promise of revolution. Revolution, as Trotsky would say. Revolution. People, young people love revolutions. Things that are going to overthrow the old systems. It's the newness, it's the novelty. Oh, you never heard about this? It must be awesome. Nadeshkeiten, garbage, stupidity. It will destroy you and destroy everything you hold there. It's going to turn you into a schmata. But the fact that I could become part of revolution. We're going to change the world. Which young person doesn't want to change the world? We all have a fire burning in our gut. And if you're a Jew, that fire is burning over time, nonstop. That fire is alive and well. And when you come to me and you give me this feeling that I can be part of revolution, I can be part of a revolution and change the world, it speaks to me, it captures me. So should I go with the old or the new? The old I know. It's old, it's dead, it's archaic, it's boring. It's been over here, it's been here for so many years and nothing ultimately has changed and I still feel worthless. It's the power of newness. You're heralding a new message, a novel idea. It's the newness, the chidush. Asheloya dato atavavisach, says the chsamsif. That which you and your fathers never heard of. Ooh, we never heard of it. It must be good. You know why? Just because we never heard of it. If we never heard of it, it's new. That is its power. Fishermen know that the best time to catch scores of fish is during or after a heavy rain. Why? Because that's when the fish rise to the top surfaces of the water. Why? 
Why is it so? Is it because they want to get wet? They're looking for water? They're submerged in water 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The Medrash asks this question. The Medrash says, why do the fish rise to the surfaces of the water when it rains or after it rains? And the fishermen come out in droves because the fish come out in droves. I understand when someone is thirsty and hasn't had water and is living in a parched and barren desert and it starts raining. You want to quench your thirst and you pine for every moment of water, for every drop of water. Ka'ayel taroig ala fike moyim ke nafshi saroig elecha lekim tsoma nafshi lelekim lekel choymosi like an ayah, like a ram, which pines and yearns for the streams of water, the currents of water. So my soul yearns, thirst, pines for you. My soul thirsts. But the fish, fish are submerged in water. And the Medrash says, They're searching for fresh water. The rain brings the much needed extra oxygen. And the rain cools the water. This turns on the fish. They swim to the top. The new oxygen, the cooler water. It's a new type of water. They've been in the ocean all day and all night. They've been there for years. But the rain is something new. We are also like the fish. We yearn for fresh water. We're bored and tired of SOS, same old spaghetti. When we especially the young among us, the idealistic among us, hear of a new ideology, a new vision for the planet, a new manifesto, a new revolution. We are enamored, and we're often transported on the wings of novelty and creativity. Mind you, these ideas can prove to be rubbish, nonsense, ludicrous, illogical. Either the entirety of the ideas or part of the ideas. But the main thing is, it comes with the freshness, the vitality, the energy of the novel, of the new, of the Chiddush. It's something, in the words of the Torah, that we never heard of before. That's the key, that's the appeal. You didn't grow up with this. Nobody heard about it. It's new. That is the attraction. It's something that our parents did not imagine. Our grandparents did not imagine for themselves. It breaks the gloom of monotony. It heralds excitement, change, transformation, metamorphosis, or in one word, you know the word, revolutia. This, says the Torah, is the power of idolatry. It's the discovery of alien, alien gods, that your tati and mommy never heard of, that you did not grow up with. Ah, I get to go against my father. I get to go against my grandfather, my grandmother. I get to go against my past. That's awesome. Now I can count for something. Now I can feel like I'm making a real contribution to society. Now I can feel like I'm part of a new march, a new energy sweeping the, sweeping the universe, especially if there's pain in my past, especially if there's unresolved tension and there's this new message, I clamor to it because, ooh, this will probably heal me from all of my problems. I don't want to go within. Who wants to go within and deal with old trauma? Much better if I can somehow escape everything and allow myself to be lured into this new idea, which must be perfect and impeccable and flawless. Won't this solve all my pain? In addition, 
to making me feel that I really, really matter. In a few years, we might discover that all of these revolutions produce nothing but confusion at their best or destruction at their worst. But for now, it's exciting. It's new. Must be awesome. We know this from personal, some of us know this from personal experience. In our youth, we were involved in promising movements that allowed us to imagine a new world. Imagine! Imagine a new world! Where did many of these imaginations lead us? Sometimes they brought some awareness into our lives. Sometimes they led us nowhere. And sometimes they just managed to destroy so many of our lives. When my youthful imagination is looking for the new guru who will transform the world, the old voice has become irrelevant. How many of our own brothers and sisters, at least pre-corona, traveled the world searching for enlightenment, for truth, for spiritual awareness? How many Jews have become great gurus in far eastern disciplines? How many Jews have gone to these gurus and literally began worshipping them? Intelligent young kids who were so critical, who if they would see a rabbi or a sage, they would never even think of surrendering their intellectual identities so profoundly. And yet, the guru who sits in the Far East has been fasting for many years, meditates nine hours a day in the ashram, dressed in white, sits on the ground with 300 candles around them in absolute silence. This triggered the soul of so many, so many Jews. In recent, in recent years, scientific studies have confirmed the power of the new. People often like new things, not because they're good, but because they are new. Many studies have shown that the expectation is that something new must be better than the thing before, because that's the reason we needed it. <laughs> the only reason it came about as something new is because the problems of the old. So this means that the new lacks those problems. And that's our conception when it comes to changes in society. If there's a new movement, a new revolution, probably it's going to get rid of all of the problems and the flaws that existed in previous movements. That's why people go with a new iPhone every few years, despite the fact that nobody actually ever seemed to demand or express a real need for the new features. But if it's new, it must be better. They've shown that dopamine, too, is contributing to our love for the novel, because the dopamine hormone is released when a novel choice is made. Now, since dopamine is responsible for making us feel so good when eating delicious food, which releases dopamine, and during other pleasurable activities, it makes sense that we would seek out and repeat any behavior that releases dopamine, and new stuff release dopamine. However, so often... We get duped by the thrill of the new. You're married for 18 years. You meet a new person. The thrill of the moment. The thrill of the few months make you shut down your sober brain. And sometimes they cause you to cast away everything you invested in your life and to throw away that which really matters to you more than anything else. But you can't see it. Your marriage is stressed. There's anxiety. 
this pain. You have invested your soul in it. And there is disappointment. And then this new promise, which hasn't really tested itself. You know, it's just some some crush or some games that people are playing. But people, sometimes, they just run with it. Oh, how they regret it years later. And it happens in so many other areas of life. The Torah says, I want you to know that this is one of the greatest attractions of all forms of fake gods. The glitz, the dazzling effects of the new thrill that we never saw, we never heard of. It must be awesome. And this has been one of the saddest mistakes of our people, collectively and individual. God, the creator of the world, gave us a blueprint for living a manual for conduct, a roadmap to navigate what is often a difficult and challenging life riddled with trauma, pain, toxic voices, financial, physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual setbacks. The Torah and the mitzvahs and everything they encompass, the whole Weltanschauung of Torah, provide us with the most noble lifestyle, ideals, perspectives, truisms by which to govern our lives individually, communally, and collectively as a people. There is a beautiful expression that was once shared by the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, Schneerus and Schusser Yogan Aleinu. He passed away in New York in 1950, and I should mention him because he was one of the few individuals who stood up to the Efsektia and the communists and Stalin when so many other Jewish leaders and sages, out of desperation, either ran from Russia or went completely underground. Until in 1927, they arrested him, sentenced him to death, ultimately commuted his sentence for, for, to exile. Ultimately, he was released in 1927. And he has an expression, I'm going to say it in Hebrew because it's beautiful. He says, Encompass a human person from the instant of emergence from his mother's womb until his final moment arrives. They place him in a space filled with light, providing him or her with a healthy way of thinking, with the acquisition of wonderful moral virtues and character traits, with good and kind behavior that they inculcated him, not only in relation to God, but also in relation to his or her fellow human being, whoever lives his life according to the Torah. And the instructions of our sages who embody Torah lives a life of deep joy and satisfaction materially, psychologically, and spiritually. But for many it seemed that Torah is old, stale, monotonous, and boring. And we should mention the fact that some people who grew up with Torah don't see this. They don't feel this. They don't experience this. So when a new prophet, a new guru, a new politician a new journalist, a new professor, a new author, a new political figure, a new social scientist, a new philosopher, a new guy on the block sending out podcasts, a new social critic, a new atheist, rises up and preaches of new gods to embrace and venerate, we often throw away 
everything our fathers, our mothers, our Zaydis, our Babas, our great-grandparents, all the way back to Sinai, breathed and lived and bequeathed to us just because this sounds so new and energetic and thrilling and it is not afraid to throw everything else under the bus and disregard every tradition that you have ever absorbed into your system. They remind us of those people who wish to lose weight quickly. You know people who want to lose weight quickly? I'm one of them. And without effort. So what do they do? They grasp at the latest advertised, guaranteed to work diet. You know those headlines? Guaranteed to work, and if not, you get all your money back. (laughs) You get all your money back. Without realizing that the claims of this latest magical diet are identical to those of all previous ones. And that if any of the earlier ones have lived up to their claim, there wouldn't really be a new need for the new one. So the Torah alludes to this by stating, when you're approached with an enhancing promise of a lifestyle that will provide eternal bliss on earth, don't get allured by the novelty. This new, never-before-known-to-mankind idea is just another one in this series of bogus ideologies which have led people into misery rather than bliss, into mayhem mayhem rather than serenity. This doesn't mean we should be afraid of novelty, of freshness, of creativity, of using our minds critically, of exploring, of excavating, and of finding deeper layers of truth. On the contrary, this means that our search for novelty should not come because we're trying to run away from our inner pain or because we just need something to make us feel important and valid, or because it's just a new message. Rather, we should have the courage to be able to search for real, real truth. This then, says the Chesam Seifer, is the secret of why the Torah repeats three times this idea about idolatry. Eleikim acherim. Not once, and not twice, but three times. This is what you have to be careful of. Chidushim, new things, are awesome. Who doesn't like novelty? We want fresh water. We, like the fish, want fresh water. But you want fresh water that is going to become part of a living wellspring of water. Because there are two types of novelties in life. There's a novelty in life that becomes a continuum of everything that is authentic and valuable and meaningful and good. Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, or Beethoven, did not need to invent new keys on the piano in order to be able to compose brilliant music. They did not. Why not? What about Chiddush? Revolutia? The answer is a real musician takes the 88 keys or the 84 keys on the piano and knows that they lend themselves to all types of compositions. And with those very keys, they can create magic. 
Just as the artist doesn't have to invent new pigment and not use any color that was ever used because novelty. You can use the same pigment and create a piece of art that touches millions. The poet doesn't have to create a new alphabet, invent new letters in order to be able to write amazing, heart-stirring, soul-stirring spirit poetry, or any great writer uses the same letters, but the configuration of the letters, the unique configuration has the imprint of this great poet or this great man or woman of words. DNA in every single living organism is using the same letters, but the sequences, the configurations their diversity is infinite, which makes for the exciting planet that we live in with so many diverse living organisms. And even if I share 50% of the DNA of the banana, I am still not a banana. And even if I share 99% of DNA with a chimpanzee, I'm still not a chimpanzee. I hope I am not. Even though there are similarities, but the uniqueness, real truth doesn't need inventing something that never, ever existed. Real truth finds the eternal relevance and power in truths that are timeless, in values that have been time-tested, and in ideologies that are rooted in truth, eternity, and reality. V'Hashem Eloikim. Emes. Thank you very much, and have a Wonderful, wonderful week. Take some questions. Thank God there are those of us who are finding out about Torah and God and mitzvahs after a lifetime of not knowing anything about it. And we are passionate about it. We are as passionate about it as those who may have rejected it on some level and run to other philosophies. Listen, I want to correct you. When you rediscover Yiddishkeit at a later stage in life, you're not discovering something that your parents, your forefathers did not know about. For thousands of years, your ancestors lived with Yiddishkeit. For 50 years, there was an interruption, maybe 100 years, maybe 150 years. Take any Jew in the world. He may be as secular and unaffiliated and assimilated as you wish. Just go back a few generations and you'll see a Jew who had payas and ayamalka and put on tefillin in the morning and David Mincha in the afternoon and celebrated Shabbos and celebrated Yom Tov and learned Torah and educated his or her children. And the same is true with your grandmother. So you just go back a few generations and you'll see that your parents knew it. And that's the uniqueness here. So there's no Jew that the chain has been interrupted for more than a few years, a few decades, maybe at most a century or two centuries, but not more, not more. Because remember, Jews who did not come back to Yiddishkeit assimilated. Jews who left, they, they went to other idols. Ultimately, either their grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren after a few generations came back, or unfortunately they were lost to the Jewish world. This is the science of Jewish history. You don't need belief for this. You don't need the supernatural belief for this. This is a science of Jewish history. Take any movement among the, the Jewish world that went away from Torah, Abandoned Torah, after a few generations, there was absolutely nothing left. Either they came back to Torah, and if they didn't, they were lost to the Jewish people. That's the truth of Jewish history. But a beautiful comment, and those who never knew about it, 
come back, and it's very exciting. And But remember that it's not really new, because you were at Mount Sinai together with all the Jews, as the Medrash says, that even the Gerim, those who convert, were also at Mount Sinai, and all the Jews who... Uh, and all the Jews of future generations were also at Mount Sinai. Interesting question, somebody says. Does this explain the fact that so many Jews today are lured in to all of these ideas that seem to me as crazy and insane, and yet so many of our young brothers and sisters are so excited about them? I think there is truth to this. I see that, you know... I don't know how to say it, but sometimes every few years or every few months, some radical stands up and speaks about ideas that seem so promising and and utopian by nature. And uh, it becomes the new holy grail, and it becomes the most important Jewish value. And people just fall prey to it, and they lose their critical thinking. And that's the power of Torah. The power of Torah is that it withstood the critical thinking of the Jewish people. That's what Moshe keeps on telling them. You were not brainwashed. You were not taken by my charisma. Moshe stuttered. He couldn't even speak. The Ran says, you know why Moshe couldn't speak? Because God did not want that anybody should say, you know how Moshe managed to convince us? The gift of Gab. He was a brilliant communicator. Moshe couldn't communicate. Moshe says, you used your critical mind. He says, I'm not selling you, you know, I'm not selling you the Brooklyn Bridge or the GW Bridge. Ponem ponem, you saw what you saw face to face. You know that it's true. <laughs> you can ask, you can question, you know that it's true. And when you know that something is true, don't throw it out. Even if you're bored, it seems monotonous. Go deeper, excavate deeper, find deeper truth. Dig deeper to find the living wellsprings. Don't go to cisterns that are broken and will ultimately not contain any of the water. I wish everybody a wonderful day and a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.